Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode 13. I'm your host, Dan Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. What up? And today we're going through and discussing emails and voicemails and their topics in this kind of supplemental part two of our last episode. A lot of it revolves around Joy. Joy is a very controversial character. Um, there were some things that were introduced to us that I haven't thought about. Um, some connections that Deckard and Kay both have to these women that they're kind of haunted by that we're going to discuss. So we're going to get all, we're going to get involved in all that. Yeah, j- just before we started recording, Jamie and I were reflecting on how how amazing the quality of the write-ins and the phone calls and the comments on Facebook we've been getting. Uh, through this podcast like there are it's like every single one of the things that you have sent to us has been genuinely thought-provoking and i'm not even generalizing i mean every single one like uh, there has been no like you know kind of like angry vitriolic garbagey spammy stuff like it's all like very interesting very personal and very thought-provoking and it means so incredibly much to us that you guys would take the time to reach out um and 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 uh we will not be able to get to everybody's things today because there's been so much of it. So if we don't, we're going to try to kind of pepper some of these through um, other you know future episodes. But just like Jamie said, on the previous episode that we did with my wife, Micah, who was freaking awesome, if I do say so myself, yes, on that was. episode, we got we got so much response to it that we actually ran out of time um, and we had to, uh, to postpone this sort of second half of the episodes. That's what we're going to do today. Um, and I, I guess we should remind you guys one more time that if you do want to engage with the show, um, there's a few ways to do that. And uh, <clears throat> the first one that that it seems like has been the most popular so far has been emailing us. And so that's uh, bladerunnerpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a phone number you can leave a message on. That's 213-787-7894. And if you don't remember that, it's in the show notes. Um, so don't worry about it. Just look in your podcatcher. Um, and if you're trying to leave a voice message and you're overseas and you can't get it to work, it's it's a U.S. based phone number. Um, you can uh, always send us a uh, like a you know an MP3 or a WAV file voice memo to Blade Runner Podcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or just do whatever. Send us a send us a you know carrier pigeon letter. We we, we really <laughs> love to hear from you guys. So do you want to get started on this? Let's do it. All right. So, so we're not going to go through everything in detail because at the at the conclusion of the previous episode, you guys heard all this stuff. So we're just kind of going to kind of go through it and, um, for the sake of time, kind of touch on some things and keep moving. But um, hopefully, there, this will foment further conversation and we'll hear even more from you guys. So please continue to engage. All right, I'll, I'll get started. On. Let's begin. Ready? Yes, sir. Reset your baseline. In blood black nothingness began to spin. A system of cells interlinked within cells, interlinked within cells, interlinked within one step. Fuck off, get job. And dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain playing Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you long for having your heart interlinked? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you dream about being interlinked? Interlinked. What's it like to hold your child in your arms? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do you feel that there's a part of you that's missing? Interlinked. Interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Why don't you say that three times? Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. Within cells interlinked. So the first one was Benjamin R's email, which started with a discussion of um, 
wood being a, a valuable commodity, um, according to Badger, and um, uh, and he notes that in Wallace's um, uh, building that there's wood on a lot of surfacing. And then the second part, he talks about how Mad Max is kind of similar to this in that it's um, this this really masterful um, revisiting of uh, of an old beloved franchise. And then he uh, closes by talking about Deacons being a lock for cinematography. So, Jamie, you want to go ahead and tackle one of those and I'll get the next one? His one observation about uh, Badger feeling like you must be rich owning a piece of wood. I, uh, I got that right away, too, that, I mean, that plant life is gone. It's dead. Um, and a lot of even uh, Mariette, when she is with Kay in the in the outside, whatever, in the downtown i don't know where they are in los angeles it looks like a food court yeah. <laughs> it it's a like food, a food court yeah, yeah kind of but a food court it's, yeah it's true it's kind of like, it's a, like a sex court yeah it's everything which is a great name for a reality tv show yeah bb's diner i think that's what it's called right even though it's a sex diner so it's like a sex <laughs> yeah diner. i think you're right yeah um but uh when he showed mariette the uh she the tree she's like well what is this and he goes it's a tree and she goes it's pretty and she goes it's dead it's and, dead. And then uh, what does she say? Why does, would anyone keep a dead tree or something yeah. like that? Yeah. Um, but I think, yes, I think uh, plant life and vegetation and all that stuff is such a thing in the past. No one even knows what it is anymore. So to be an owner of something made out of wood for sure is something that uh, kind of puts you on a higher financial status level for sure. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. totally. It's a valuable commodity, just like the owl being in, in Tyrell's headquarters was, yeah. you know indicator of wealth. Now I, I have, I have something I want to bring up. Um, but before I do, um, well, I actually, I'll go, I'll go right to that for the sake of time. So I, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't have the art and soul of Blade Runner yet because mine was on back order. The, the, the surfacing, <laughs> the surfacing of, uh, of the interior of the Wallace headquarters looks to be concrete to me. It looks like brutal, like proto brutalist, um, concrete a la the Holocaust Memorial, by Daniel Liebeskind, that, that, that kind of a, of yes, a design. Yeah. I don't know if that's wood. I, I agree that it looks like it's wood, but um, I actually, so when I, I've seen the movie, of course, I've seen the movie again since we did that episode. <laughs> We're going again on Saturday. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I need to go one um, more time too. I really do. Yeah, we got to get it because it's almost done. Yeah. Um, but uh, when when I was there, I was I was paying attention to look for this to see if it was it was wood or not. And what cued me off to thinking that it probably was not was the uh, the sound mixing because when, when Kay... And, uh, well, I, forget, I can't remember what his character's name is, but his the actor's name is Thomas de la Marquis, who was actually the guy who was narrating the Sophia, the AI video that we posted to our Facebook page, which was a freaking crazy mm-hmm. meeting of the world. Yeah. We, we can get to that episode. But they probably did when that on walking, purpose. I'm sure they, they must have. There's yeah. no way they didn't. But when they're walking through the archives, um, you can hear the, the the steps on the ground, the foley that they used for that is very clearly on, on um, stone. Yeah. And the the echoing of the voice, the reverb is very wet and very reverberant, which makes me think that it's not wood, which would absorb a lot of that sound. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming it's concrete. That being said, it certainly looks like it's wood. And um, the, the the only other thing that I wanted to bring up really quickly was we had a little bit a little bit of a debate break out the other day on um, uh, Fields of Calantha, which if if any of you don't know what that is, um, it's it's our Blade Runner discussion group that's tied to the show. So it's like a really good way to have a quick interactive um, back and forth. And we're all very active in there. You know, if you want to talk about episodes of the show, or you want to talk about Blade Runner more generally. Um, but there's a little bit of an argument on Fields of Calantha about the line Mariette says when she sees the horse. Do you remember this? Yes. So I think that she says it's from the dream. Yeah, me too. 
Oh, you do too. Oh, yeah, you do too. That's right. Yeah. We agree on this. But but like everybody else said, it's from a tree or it's from the tree, right? But why um, would she say that? Why would she say it's from the tree? How would she even know it was from the tree? Well, um, she did see. She saw his like you know interactive business card thing. I know, but she, but why would she make the correlation? Oh, he must have got it from the tree. Like what? Like, well, I, but part of it's like it could be like a Chekhov's gun scenario because like they they make a point of her seeing the tree and registering it, you know? Yeah, but also there's also the point later on with K when he when um that replicant tells him she's like, oh, you thought it was you, and then she goes, we all thought it was us, and it made me think that that memory has been passed to all replicants. That's what I thought too, and then I saw it with my brother-in-law and his girlfriend, uh, it, who and he's on this episode as well. We're gonna get to his call, and and he thought I was crazy for thinking that, and and, and now I'm all paranoid because uh, I, I assumed that Staline had been planting this memory in tons of different replicants. Um, the idea being that one of them would connect the dots and figure out, um, that you know that that there was this this prodigal child and go rescue. What we need to do is we need a a listener who has seen this film with subtitles overseas and see what the word they use. Yes. That's, that's the way to, to remedy the situation. Can one of you, I I know for a fact we have at least five listeners in Sweden because we get a lot of email from Sweden. If one of you guys would not mind letting us know what you see in the subtitles because we don't have access to those, that'd be freaking awesome. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Benjamin's second point uh, about Mad Max Fury Road is is one that I, I think I, I brought up on one of the first episodes of this podcast about how, um, to me, that was like one of the most impressive things I've ever seen on screen because like I thought there were, there would be no way that they would be able to um, replicate the the incredible, you know, the 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 violence and the beauty and the poetry and the symbolism and the and the just this incredible um, atmosphere of the original Mad Max films. And I, I, I think Fury, Fury Road is the best Mad Max film personally. So I totally see that connection. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I mean, I don't think that they're companion pieces. Well, in the sense that, yes, they are incredible sequels. Re- I mean, Blade Runner 2049 is a sequel. It is not a reboot. Mad Max it's Fury linear. Road is a reboot. But uh, yeah. it is absolutely amazing most of these reboots are horrible or they're like yeah okay a couple good ideas but it was shit mad max right. fury road is fucking phenomenal and they need to make a furiosa <laughs> film they they do but I, I i hope they take their time with it because fury road like i mean seeing that you know it's another one of these movies that i was looking forward to for like years and going an opening night to that and seeing that triumphant i mean yeah oh my god it's, it's still my my ringtone is, is still the the Junkie XL theme from that is freaking amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you want to move on to the next email? Yeah. So, oh, well, let's just t- uh, Ben talks about, or Benjamin talks about his last point is Deacons. I thought Deacons yeah. was a lock for Skyfall. Um, he can't possibly lose for this one, can he? And then he talks about Dunkirk. Uh, I would hope. I mean, twenty forty nine is just visually more than astounding. It is a, it is, it is a watershed. It is water. It is there. It is watershed. They ho- it hosts watershed visuals, and in a, an environment where that is almost nearly impossible because we've seen everything. Um, right. What we're seeing in twenty forty nine, I've never seen before. Um, even yeah. though this is a sequel to a film that we're very familiar familiar with, this is a world we're very familiar with. But they expanded it, and they. I mean, it was just. I mean, I, when I hear the music, I was listening to the soundtrack right before we started talking today, uh, yeah. or tonight, and the soundtrack, I was just. Uh, I was just transported right to this world. It's just this living, breathing thing that I feel like is out there somewhere, you know? 
I, I completely, completely agree. And I, I think um, from the very first uh, trailer images we saw, I, I, I already knew that it was going to be almost an unprecedentedly beautiful film, just the way it was shot. Mm-hmm. And having seen it now so many times, and I mean, it just, it's, I, I can't think of a more ravishing movie outside of some Terrence Malick sections or, you know, maybe uh, some things that I've seen from, um, you know, like Fellini films. Like there's some moments that kind of match up to that. But, but in terms of contemporary, you know, digital era cinema, yeah, I can't think of, I can't think of anything that looks that good. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I, would I say, mean, it looks like it was shot in 70 millimeter, but it, yeah. it wasn't. Oh my God. It's incredible. The only film that I've seen that is this beautiful in the past five years is Prometheus. Wow. Yeah. But this blows Prometheus away, but Prometheus is really beautiful. I mean, it is very beautiful. It yeah. is just the, the art direction, the, the sets, the everything it's, it is, it stands alone. I think in the alien series as something that's, aesthetically really really special akin to only the first one so yeah 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 it it, i i think no matter what um we can all agree that deacons deserves it for this and i'm i'm assuming it will go to dunkirk because it's it's so difficult for a science fiction film to win anything other than best visual effects but who knows knows? i don't know i think deacons i think he'll win i think he deserves it yeah all right want to move on yeah so let's move on gabriel torres he is. He wrote us from Sweden, and he's asking. Another. Us. We got. We got so many people in Sweden. I know, I love which this. is awesome. It's great. It is awesome. I have a number of Swedish friends in my personal life too, who also listen to the show. So thank you, thank you all very much. Totally, we love Sweden. And Gabriel's asking about, or he's kind of talking about my, the idea of. Well, what I talked about my favorite line from the film was, "We will storm Eden and retake her," and uh, he Gabriel believes that it might imply that. Um, neander wallace is a replicant and i think that's a very we don't know what neander is he's certainly uh he's certainly augmented uh with technology um he's very mysterious he doesn't have a lot of things to do in the film we see him twice i think we see him twice there's there's two extended scenes and that's it yeah Yeah, well i think we see him twice but there's three scenes because you see him in the beginning when, when she's love is walking up and yeah yeah and he's just getting back from his trip. Um, but Gabriel also talks about how what Neander is saying implies that he, that replicants is the next step for human evolution. Um, so he's saying we like, this is who we are going to be now. Um, right. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think there's more to Neander than meets the eye. I, I think it's very, very plausible that he's uh, maybe a Nexus 8 and no one knows that that, mm. that, that doesn't have a serial number. And he's taken, he's like a rogue Nexus totally. 8. Totally. Yeah. And he's taken over. He started his own company. He's taken over the Tyrell Corporation and no one knows he's a replicant. It's very, very yeah. possible because he doesn't have the, the thing under his eye probably or he removed it, which is why he's blind. Right, right, right. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that would be very cool. Um, I, 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 I personally don't don't think that that's what is going on here. And I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm thinking that he's um, an ambitious human who uh, has some sort of a genetic abnormality. And that could be why he was on world in the first place. And, uh, and, and through his engineering prowess was able to augment himself and build these um, incredible tools. And, and as a part of that, perhaps um, was able to 
to develop his like you know his crop intensification protein farm stuff and that's how you know he built his empire but um <clears throat> i i see him as a human i also think i the reason why i i hesitate to say that he's a replicant is because he so clearly looks down on replicants and and, and is, is very proud of the fact that he's engineering a race of slaves you know well i see um, i don't see that i think he remember when uh love walks up to him and she goes the new models are ready and he goes is it so difficult for you to He's like, these are angels. Like, I don't think he looks down on them at all. In fact, he talks about slaves. Then he says, I can only make so many. I don't, I think he's using terminology that yes, these replicants are, have been slaves and they've been used to rebuild this world. Now we're going to storm Eden. Now we're going to, you know, uh, make millions and rise up or i don't know i just i don't i don't that... know i i think i think he borderline fetishes the slave aspect of it yeah you know, I, I think he he makes a point to say uh i'm gonna try to do a wallace impression ready okay we've okay i'm, I'm not even gonna try no, we've, he says we've lost our appetite for slaves <laughs> um and then he says unless engineered and he drops her head remember that yeah, yeah. um and and to me to me like that that seems like he's very clearly saying like it's time to get slaves that can that can have sex with each other and make more slaves yeah yeah um you know and 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 he's he's clearly motivated not by a desire to overthrow humanity he's 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 motivated by a desire by a desire to colonize stars as broadly as he can and planets you know yeah but star then, systems but again back to the stormy Eden thing <laughs> uh, Eden was created for man. So much like Eden, right. Eden is Earth, and he's saying we will retake it. And I get that to mean that he will make enough replicants, and they will then breed themselves if he can figure it out, and they'll take over the world. Well, um, that's a good point. And, and he also is seen uh, advocating to, of course, reintroduce replicants in the first place. After the blackout, they were outlawed, remember, yeah. and we see in, yeah. in 2036 – um, that he's trying to to he's lobbying to get them to be allowed again, and he's also removing restrictions on lifespan. Remember, he talks about how um, you know we can make replicants that can live as long as the owners pay for. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also engineering broadly uh, and gradually more and more powerful and um, capable replicants, as evidenced by Kay, you know, who is this like superhuman being, you know, who's who's able to withstand all that damage and still be controlled and still. Um, you know, be um, subservient, but but he's like the best slave you could ever ask for. You know, mm-hmm. until until he's not, and that is catastrophically important. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I yeah, I think I think Wallace is is just incredibly fascinating. Me too. But but my, my personal opinion is that he's just a genetically flawed human who, through his engineering abilities, was able to supersede that, and now um, would like to build a race of slaves to become the most powerful human in the entire known universe. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I, some people have criticized the size of, of uh, Neander's role or, you know, Leto's role as Neander. People are like, oh, you know, we, we don't know his motives. We don't, you know, we don't know what he – or some people have said, actually, he's laid it out too much. It was too obvious. Um, but I, I, like, I like all the mystery. We don't know a lot about him. He's, he's a shadowy figure, as was Tyrell. Um, yeah. They kind of – we don't know anything about Tyrell. We don't know anything about him, I know. Nothing. We know more about Neander than we do about Tyrell. Yeah. If anything, if if it's correct, if, if Neander's uh, speculation is correct, he built Rachel to, to seduce subtly Deckard. Um, yeah. Maybe. And that's all we know about Tyrell. That's it. End of story. So I, I would I would absolutely hazard a guess to say that Tyrell, we, we know far more about him. He's far, he's, but he's also about, about very, Wallace. 
Sorry, Wallace. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, but Wallace is also very, um, you know, he's like a shaman. He's very, he's like a mystic. He's, he speaks. He in, is. Yeah. He speaks in prose. Um, I think he's a little <laughs> bit drunk on himself a little bit. I don't think he lives in reality. I think he lives. Well, in it, his... and also it, it seems like he's past the point where like maybe at one point he was like this effective visionary, but now he's just kind of like become this hermetic mystical, you know, uh, like he's kind of lost it a little bit, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. I, I think it would be interesting to see what he was like before the blackout and stuff, and see what his early years were like, and you know, <clears throat> where he, where he came from, um, and and how he, how he managed to save the you know human race basically, single handedly, which is you know, pretty impressive. Yeah. I also think something that's cool with Wallace is you know we talk speaking of Prometheus, we talk a lot about how the there there are some futurologists who say that when we see um, an extraterrestrial species for the first time, that's more advanced than we are. They won't appear to be technologically advanced because they will be so advanced they will appear primitive to us because uh-huh. we won't be able to comprehend their level of advancement. Yeah. And to me, there's a little bit of that going on with uh, with Wallace because the, the first time I saw the movie, I was a little bit irked by how he just kind of seemed like this like – I was like, like, how do you get anything done? Like you don't have access to any technology in your little like meditation chamber thing. Like you, you're not – you're never like doing anything. Like you're just kind of like slowly walking around and being menacing and saying these like you know poetically absurd – um, things. And then, and then I realized that no, like it makes sense that he perhaps is just like so advanced that I, I, I don't even know how to comprehend how he's getting his work done. You know, mm-hmm. like maybe it's all completely internal circuitry, um, via that augmentation port on his neck. And he's, you know, those things, remember, remember when love opens that box up and it's those yeah. beautiful little sort of chiclet things, yeah. you know, maybe some of those are, maybe he does his work internally and that's, you know, um, he's able to have somehow some kind of a deliverable from that that other people can visualize, and that's how they do the engineering or something. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I just think there's so much going on with him. I agree. I agree. And I don't. The less I know, the the more intriguing he is. Um, yeah. That's one. That's the beauty of great sci-fi is they're not explaining everything to you. It's not all laid out. You don't really know much about him. Um, the way you know the Emperor was that way in Return of the Jedi and uh, The Empire Strikes Back. You saw a little bit of him. You don't really know. He's a shadowy menace. Phantom right. um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, you don't know anything about the emperor, but you didn't really need to. Yeah. Um, right, but right. you didn't need to. And he worked wonderfully and he, and it know, makes him scary too. Totally. Like the alien, totally. You know, it's more frightening because you can't see it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the last email that we got is, is, is very short and shouldn't take very long. Um, this one is from Shane Bassett. What up Shane? Thank you for writing in. Um, and if I remember, um, Shane does uh, film reviews, I think, or, or um, writes on film. So look him up on uh, on the internet. Um, he says uh, <clears throat> that he does does not think that Harrison Ford will be getting a supporting Oscar for this nomination because he's good, but he's not terrific. And he thinks that uh, Harrison Ford looks bored at times, especially when he's sitting in the flooding spinner. Um, and uh, I, I, I personally could not uh, disagree more <laughs> strongly yeah. with you. Yeah. But um, I'll let how's he talk. Su- how's, how's he supposed to look? Like, how is he? How, was he supposed to be f- afraid the whole time? Like wincing? Like I don't, I don't understand that. Like he's being taken somewhere and it's perplexing to him, and he's chained up and he looks uncomfortable. But also, at the end of the day, like, what does he have to live for? I, I, I actually, I actually think that he probably wished that he could have died in that 
scenario mm-hmm. because he knew what was – I mean, he, look at it. Like he was being transported to be tortured. Like the whole purpose of, of going into that spinner in the first place, remember Wallace said we have tools off world that we that we can convince you with. Mm-hmm. So like that's why he's being extradited off the planet is, is to be tortured. Yeah. So um, – you know, you would think that being killed in that scenario could be sort of a respite. Also, the 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 more immediate benefit to being killed would be that there would be no chance of him divulging any information about his daughter that he might have retained. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so he would have been saving her life. And indeed, when when Kay pulls him out of the water, um, Deckard says, "You should have let me die back there." Um, yeah, and I, I I think he actually means that he he kind of wanted to have died. You know? Yeah, I, well, I agree too. You know, and I I think he probably believed at that point that his child was dead, um, that it didn't make it. He didn't know anything, which is where he wanted to be. He didn't want to know anything. Um, so then, obviously, in that moment, you know, he finds out that his daughter is alive. Um, right. So yeah, it's it's just it's, sort of a mirror to the to the Rachel situation, right? Because in in a way. Um, Kay brings Deckard back to life as well, just like Rachel did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like he convinces him that like that, that there is, there is something worth living for because yeah. she's actually out there, you know? And now, now he can see her. Yeah. And now, and whether or not Har- Harrison Ford will be nominated for an award, I mean, that's n- neither here nor there. Who knows? I mean, I don't, he is older in his life or, you know, he's older. His career is waning. Um, I mean, he's still got Indiana Jones he's doing. Um, he did Star Wars a couple of years ago. Uh, I think he's got, I mean, he's not an old man. I mean, he's older. He's like 75. Um, so he's got many years left. Um, so typically when the Academy, the Academy will probably start looking for something to nominate him for. And it could be Blade Runner. Who knows? But I just, it would be supporting actor. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a, a best actor nomination. No, I mean, it's shocking how late into the movie he he shows up. Yeah. I actually think part of the problem why, uh, uh, like I saw it with, with my good friend Doug, um, one of my best buddies um, the other day, and we've been I had been building it up for a very long time, and we finally went and saw it, and he liked the movie a lot, but, but he found it like just interminably long. And and I and I think maybe part of the reason why some people are feeling like it's a long film is because you know that Harrison Ford is in it because you see him on the poster. Yeah. But he doesn't come in until basically two hours in the movie. So people are so waiting. you're like, how much yeah. how much more time can there be in this thing? You know, like we just got the other guy in the poster, and we've been sitting in the theater for an hour and forty five minutes or whatever it is. Yeah, um, I, I don't I don't mind that because I I don't feel like the movie is too long at all. But but I can see that being potentially a, a problem for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But I can't oh, so the awards the the award season you know the nominations for that are coming up pretty soon, right? That's that usually starts happening in like December, January, January, yeah. So, you know, the, the release timing is, is pretty good for that. But I, I, I honestly, like, I feel like for, for whatever reason, is that a train in the background? Oh, you hear that? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's so, I love that. It's so I soothing. I do too. It's very soothing. Yeah. I love it. Beautiful. Um, but it's not going to hit your house, right? No. Like they're not beeping at you to get out. No. <laughs> to get that, out of the way. <laughs> that train is probably a mile and a half away. It's got least. a set of pipes. Yeah. Well done train. It's, what is it? It's the, uh, Metrolink for Los Angeles. Oh, cool. 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 I'm living Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. Yeah, we, we actually we live right near train tracks too, but because we always record like in the middle of the night on the East Coast, you never you never hear them. Yeah. Um. But uh, I had a I had a point to make about about oh, so I I feel like completely dumbfounded by how quickly interest in, in 2049 has just plummeted, um, and how how I, how quickly people have written it off as this failure, um financially which which apparently it it is i, I mean I, it's it seems like that's kind of the definitive narrative at this point yeah. even sure though we'll it's get... made almost 90 million domestic <coughs> yeah 
You all right? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm good. But I just feel like um, <clears throat> it's uh, it's kind of shocking how quickly it dropped off, and 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 I. I don't know. I like. I, I kind of thought that there'd be all this momentum carrying it into award season, and and I, I can't see this. It, it already feels like people have moved on. Like the fact that Thor made more in twenty four hours than Blade Runner has made internationally in a month. Yeah. Um, so, yeah but you're also talking Thor is like a, a steak dinner for people who that's right. when that's all that they eat and that's all that they like. Thor and Blade Runner is like Thai food, and not a lot. Not everybody likes Thai food, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing. I. I, I the trades, Hollywood Reporter, um, Variety, all of those things that have social media accounts, and IndieWire, and all of these film outlets, they've been making these posts like Blade Runner expected to lose $80 million for Alcon. Yeah, they love those posts. Yes, Blade Runner's not doing very well. Blade Runner is being pulled early. They love it. They lo- I mean, and if they don't love it, if any of the people who work on these magazines or rags are listening, prove it to me. They love these posts. It's like it's like it's a teardown society. Let's tear it down. Yeah, it I never used to see these posts before. You're talking two years ago. I never saw this kind of thing before. Now they're like, it's like, oh, that's doing tear. I mean, they did this with the DC films. Um, and with every, even with with MCU films, they do this too. Yeah, you know, they're like, it's not making an eight hundred percent profit. This is a failure. You yeah. know, and they, it's just, and they're everywhere. They're posting. it's dooming the whole like studio system. It's it's, and they like they they're like this is uh, you know this is like a, a nail in the coffin of independent cinema. You know, yeah. and like, and they're one of the recent ones is uh, Warner Brothers is pulling the plug on their dark universe and. Um, and well, then, thank God for that. Yeah, well, those films are legitimately. <laughs> Just not good. Um, no. They're not good at all. I mean, I, I could have made a better film with my eyes closed. Um, yeah. At any rate. Um, but yeah, I think that those posts, those are influencers. These 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 outlets with social media accounts, they have hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of followers. And so they put those posts out there and everyone sees it. And it, a lot of people are like, well, I'll wait till video then. Mo- yeah. People must not like it if it's not doing well. That's what's happening. Social media is so important that these influencers, and I think also a lot of influencers for Alien Covenant were the same way. Um, you had a, a large faction of people saying, no, we don't like it. And I think a lot of people listened to it um, and they didn't go and see it. Um, yeah. But I, I just think, uh, I, I, I'll say shame on you. Shame on this, this culture of this teardown culture that kind of loves to see things fail. And uh, I, I, and I, at the same time, Blade Runner was never for everyone. A lot of people, even people who grew up in the 80s, you'll talk to them about that movie. They, some of them, a lot of them won't know what you're talking about. The, also, the, the, the producers, and I, I think I said this before, the producers and the director and the studio should have realized that this was not going to be a Star Wars. It wasn't even going to be an alien. Like, a two-hour and 45-minute film isn't, that's thought-provoking and... And, uh, and rated R. And rated yeah. R and... And nuanced and subtle and all these many things. What did you expect? It wasn't going to do gangbusters. I mean, I don't. I think it's doing the amount of money it should be doing. They just spent too much on it. Yeah, you, you could be totally right. Well, we're going to find out. So, yeah. Um, yeah. anybody move on to the calls? Yeah, let's do that. Every civilization was built off the back of a disposable workforce. But I can only make so many. Shh. Happy birthday. 
So Dan writes in, Dan Ferlotti, uh thanks for writing. Well, or, I'm sorry, Dan yeah. Dan sent us an email, uh, a voicemail. He called in. Thanks for doing that. And he's <laughs> talking about a lot of different things. And uh, one of them is the totem, the horse that Kay finds. And Dan's trying to understand why Kay was acting that way. And I believe that Kay was acting like that because he was seeing a physical manifestation of something that it shouldn't be real. He found a horse from his memory that shouldn't exist. So it's throwing everything about his Kay's existence into flux. Kay always believed that he was a replicant. This horse is telling him he's not. Um, or he's at least not hum human born or replicant born. The horse tells him he is born of woman, of a woman. Um, so we're seeing on screen his world being thrown upside down. And he can't, it's almost like does not compute, does not compute. Um, because I think part of the replicants are a little bit computery. I think there is a bit of droid in them somewhere. Um, so that's my take on the totem scene. Um, the next one, he talks about uh, just a small, a small detail in the film where Kay's in the office where, uh, what's his name? Brings Lenny him, James, Lenny uh, James Cotton. Yeah, I think it's Cotton, right? Yeah, uh, where he brings his character to look for records about children who have been through. Um, which the funny thing about that scene, though, is it's kind of a little bit of the criticism. That place was such in disarray; it's not almost believable that they would have kept records. I just don't. It seemed more like a a place where people bought and sold children. So why would they keep records? At any rate, um, it's well. Weird. I, I mean, I. I I, I, I could, I could like, you have to keep good records in those situations because there are so many parties involved. Like where are these kids coming from? You know, where are they going to, yeah. you know, I, I mean, I, I, I think some of the best record keeping in the world is probably done on the dark net because these people aren't doing transactions of like, you know, like drug sales and things. And, and, and you have to be very careful that you pay debts back and you have to be very careful that you know who's coming where and who's going, who's going where, um, if nothing else, so that you have the ability to manipulate that should the need arise, you know, or um, I, I could see that being the case. I, I got to say, I love the set design um, in that in that office. Too. I think it's so cool. The, the fact that it has an open ceiling, too, and it's like just shit falling down. Anyway, go go ahead with the rest of the Well, no, no, I love it, too. It's dirty. And there's a scene where Kay turns a little ashtray um, and there's a horse. And Dan says that there's a scar where the horn would be indicating a unicorn because that's been a theme for um blade runner the 2019 and then um a horse is a theme we're still kind of trading in the same stock where it's not a unicorn but it's a horse made out of something very rare so we're still talking about rare things and horses at this point are just like unicorns they don't exist anymore except for synthetic yeah. synthetic horses so it's very interesting that's a good point that's a really good point and and it's 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 it shows the devolution of the environment you know yeah. Yeah. that like like i think in the last episode you said something about how this was a post-apocalyptic version of a post-apocalypse or something like it, it was it was an apocalypse after an apocalypse this this movie um Right, didn't you say you said you said it yeah, that? Yeah, it's a dyst it's a dystopian future of a dystopian. Oh yeah, future. of a dystopian future. Right, yeah, that, right, right. And uh, and 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 I think that what better way to represent that than like you know this unattainable organism in the first film being a unicorn, in the second film the unattainable organism is just a wooden horse. You know, mm -hmm. like yeah. how much more how much more depressing can you can you get than that? And yet, how much more beautiful? I mean, it's a trinket made by a father for his child. You know. Yeah. Um. It's a uh, you know rough hewn out of the wood of dying trees, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love the physicality of that. I think it's such a such a powerful image that yeah. it's just like you know, 
that it's just this like tiny little and Dan again great great word you know totem and I think it's exactly what that is. Yeah, thanks Dan um, for that. Yeah, Dan, well done. You sound like a knowledgeable guy. Um, the next one is. All right. The next call is uh, from Peter, who's from Atlanta, which is an awesome city. Been there many times myself. Um, and uh, he's enjoying the podcast. And he brings up a really cool point about the the bee or the the wasp, um, which um, which I had mentioned in the previous episode was my favorite image in the movie. Um, and he riffs off of that a little bit and says that it reminds him of when Rachel is getting the Void Comp test administered in the first film, um, when one of the questions is about um, a wasp, and she says that she would kill it. And, um, and so, so Peter is saying that, um, <clears throat> this might be representing in some way Kay's, uh, evolution, like that, that he's starting to understand, um, what it's like to be human and to break away from, um, the old replicant mindset. And, uh, and, and the way that he looks at it, um, it looks like he's seeing it as something, um, that is, uh, alive and and not something that's um you know synthetically created and that it, it might show um some sort of a of a new level of perception for him because he's thinking less like a replicant and more like a, an observant human who's in awe of something um and i think that's that's a really good point i, I think I, I think that's a very powerful image in general mm-hmm. and it's interesting though because if you're going to compare and contrast what rachel says and what Kay does Kay finds a bee the bee lands on his hand and instead of him reacting he's just staring at it number one because those don't exist so life is coming back which is interesting it's an interesting uh 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 it's kind of like a um they're hinting at something there's life where life should not be which is much like staline she is she should not be she sh- she was born but she should not have been born the impossible is where the impo- the possible is where the impossible is so i kind of get that rachel, that's a great point rachel at this point at the point we meet her she goes i would kill it because she thinks she she she's human and that's what human would humans would do because it might sting you and it's a threat k is a replicant and he knows he's a replicant and he's engineered to be docile right um, so for him everything's he's kind of like walter from covenant a little bit just observing in fact actually Kay and walter have quite a bit in common they're all they're they're very observe observant androids slash humanoids yep. you know yeah they're very they're very dependable they're very service oriented they're they were created as for, as later versions of earlier um synthetics that malfunctioned yeah um and were deliberately bred or created to be less human and yep. more more synthetic but also more effective more subservient, uh, more obedient. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's a that's a really good um, a really good analogy. Uh, I, I I think that um, that it, I think it's really cool that that he doesn't um, you know t- try to kill it and that, and that he has like this sort of reverence for you know for life and like when he puts his hand into the um, into the apiary um, and he draws it out you know and and it's covered with bees and it's very it's a very peaceful yeah. moment. I also think it's amazing uh, from a sound editing standpoint. Uh, so like after after he walks away from the uh, uh, the sound design of that whole section is just absolutely transcendent yeah. from the from the loud drum noises when when it cuts to Las Vegas you know when he's walking out of the out of the spinner to when you hear the distant bees rumbling and then he goes up to it and it's like deafeningly loud almost like it's approximating this kind of like white noise because there's mm-hmm. so many bees mm-hmm. and then um and then there's a jump cut right it, it goes directly to him walking towards the hotel um and the bees are gone and it's completely silent and 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 it's it is like shockingly loud the silence is like definitely loud and then you hear very 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 faintly the piano 
Um, and it's, and you think it's on the soundtrack, but it's not, it's actually in situ. So just a very, very, very cool sequence of, uh, yeah. of... it's very, yeah, it's art. It's iconic. The whole scene is iconic. Our next <clears throat> voicemail is from Dustin Tugas, which is Patrick. Who's that asshole? <laughs> Patrick's brother-in-law. And he's calling because, uh, he, he called in just because he's actually, he agreed with me a little bit that. We have, you know, Joy, the discussion of Joy and who she is or who she isn't has been a topic of two very long podcasts now. And she continues to be. She continues to be a discussion of what is she, is she, a val- what is she? Is she valid? Is she, you know, is she effective? Um, is she self-aware? Um, and there's a lot of people, I would say the majority of people really identify with her and they find that Blade Runner 2049 really has her heart. Um, I'm not one of those it's people. It's funny that even even after two episodes that like went off the rails and devolved into basically just extended joy conversations. I say went off the rails, but I'm I'm actually really proud of those episodes. I think those were really great. Oh conversations. yeah, I mean this but is like a, after yeah after like four hours of talking about this character, we're still just today getting emails about people bringing up points about joy. Yeah. And like the first time I saw the movie, like I did not walk out thinking people were going to be talking, you know ad nauseum about about joy as a character but it turns out she really for some reason um is a, a kind of a linchpin of conversation around this which film. is fascinating to me i mean it's fascinating how we all experience different things number one because when i left each showing i never thought about her once not once um but as we've explored my relationship to technology is different you, uh, the way you guys you and micah but you specifically patrick you engage differently because of your experiences um Joy, you know, and, and then someone, we'll get into it at some other point, but someone brought up the idea that maybe Joy, you know, is, was made to make people feel less lonely. And yeah. we really don't know what Joy is. We know what replicants are to some degree. They're very, they're engineered humans, probably with a little bit of droid in them somewhere, just because they have the, their, their eyes with their serial numbers that glow and all that stuff. Um, but... I still don't think that the question is answered. People believe um, what they believe about joy just because I believe, you know, just because I feel a certain way about joy doesn't mean it's true. Um, But, you know, now now we have people introduced. I mean, I I have this idea that there's probably thousands of other joys being played in people's homes. And she's probably just as genuine, just as caring, just as loving, because that's what she's programmed to be. Um, Right. So. Yeah, uh, unless there is something special about this about this joy, which which I, I think from a filmmaking perspective, we're kind of led to believe because she makes dangerous choices well, that here, put herself put herself in peril. You know? I think there's something special about Kay. Kay mm. sees, sees something special about Joy. That's what it is. I don't think there's anything special about Joy. She isn't. She's not. She's but just, maybe maybe him seeing her as special uh, makes her special enough to make him special Maybe. as well yeah right? i mean it's like she reminds loop. him yeah and you know during the points where he believes he is you know a child of woman born she's saying you're special you're special and he she's convincing him so she yeah. pushes him further into a life a fuller life um yeah. and i think she is the catalyst for him in many ways um when he yeah. loses her he doesn't have anything to live for. He sees her on the bridge. And I, I, I want to make this one point that someone made that we're going to address eventually in more detail in a later, in a later episode. But you have Deckard who was introduced to a new model of who looks just like the old model of Rachel dressed in the same clothes, but he knows it's different. And then you have Kay on the bridge introduced to the kind of the standard model 
of joy, but he knows it's not joy. And both of them, their eyes are different, which is interesting. Um, yeah. So they both. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the the brown eyes versus the green eyes, and the black eyes versus the the hazel eyes. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, I'll just throw it back real quick. If you think in 2019, Roy Batty also lost someone that means something to him. Mm-hmm. Um, so all these men have kind of lost these women, or facsimiles, or whatever. Um, it's just it's an interesting parallel. Um, yeah, there's a lot there about unreality and about yeah facsimiles and about simulacrum and simulacra and all that kind of stuff that we will definitely unpack. I, I want to bring up one more thing that Dustin says that I thought was really interesting in which for all of the talk that we've been doing since 2007 or earlier than that about the unicorn dream, um, I haven't heard anybody say this yet, which is that <clears throat> he thinks that um, the unicorn could be potentially um, some sort of a foreshadowing of him having a daughter because um, – you know, stereotypically or, or typically, um, a unicorn is like a very uh, heavily featured um, character in, in a lot of like um, children's literature, and especially a lot of things that little girls gravitate towards. Things like My Little Pony, or things like um, you know, fantasy tales um, of castles and and things like that. And and, and the unicorn is a symbol that is, is kind of rife through that. And so, um, you know, I I, th- I would imagine in 2019, and you know, when it was when the director's cut and the final cut came out, um, <clears throat> that the the unicorn was not intended to be foreshadowing the daughter because uh, they didn't have a screenplay yet. But I do think that you could potentially read it as that now that that was some sort of a vision of, of the daughter that he would have with Rachel um, pushing him forwards and convincing him to, um, to take Rachel with him. Mm-hmm. And that the, the eventual horse totem being the symbol of Staline as we find it to be could very, very clearly be a, a hearkening to that. So I, I thought that was a great point, Dustin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, it speaks to Stellene's, even her existence. I mean, she's, she's this rare, she's a, 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 a again, a, a creature that shouldn't exist much like a unicorn. And she's living yeah. in this very protective environment. And I don't even know if she knows who, what she is. I don't think she yeah. knows. We don't know if we know. I don't know if the audience knows if she knows who she is. Um, right. she just, all of a sudden she has this business that she grew up in an orphanage or whatever, I don't know. She has a story about parents. Maybe she was adopted and raised by other people. Um, I'm not really sure. Maybe she does know because she has that memory. Um, right, but, but she says that like her parents went off world and, you know, I mean, like, yeah, like what parents were these that she's talking about? Like, yeah, the, yeah. And, and, and also like she is a replicant, right? Like that's something that I feel like we're not really talking about. But um, but she she was born of a replicant. It's not like she was a human born of a replicant, right? Yeah. So like what is she, you know, in terms of her um, – organic construction like is she where does the replicant end and the human begin if, if deckard is in fact a human which i don't think he isn't you know i think he's a replicant as well um <clears throat> but yeah Celine, i mean it's another pandora's box of questions and i'm sure that when we talk more about her on a future episode which we really should um we're going to get a lot of interesting thoughts on her too because she's she's like this um like a jacob's ladder or something you know you, yeah. you start going down it never ends you know uh, uh, to the point about Unicorns and girls. I think that's fascinating. I mean, I loved unicorns as a kid. I loved them. I was obsessed mm. with them. I mean, I uh, I was also obsessed with mermaids too, um, mm. but just because they were so different. So I guess I can understand, I guess, the speculation that, oh, it must have been a girl because girls like unicorns to some degree, but I liked unicorns. I know other boys who did. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and to hear uh, his message, he doesn't say uh, all girls are, you know, he makes no, a point no, no. saying that he's generalizing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, totally. Um, Totally. I, I, it's just, I was just kind of challenging that just a little bit, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I can, I can totally see it. I just think maybe it, it's kind of hinting that it's something special and different. 
and that's what right. Stellene is. Um, right. More of because them. there's there's no there's no accident that it's a unicorn, you know, like of, of all of the animals that that vision could have been, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's an impossible animal, you yeah. know. Yeah. So and, and and when you think about it, like Stellene is the impossible animal, yeah. you know. Yeah. Deckard's not like 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 why, <clears throat> if anything, Rachel is, you know. Yeah, I was going to say Rachel is certainly an impossible animal. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I think that the unicorn now has these layers of, of meaning tied into it, and I'm sure that them using a horse, just like Dan said, was not an accident. Oh you no, know, that, not at no. all. Um, yeah. So again, awesome call, Dustin. Thanks for calling in, buddy. Uh, I think we got one more. So, so yeah, we have one more call that we didn't get to last time um, that was sent into us, and we just didn't have time to put it into the podcast. So we're going to play that at the conclusion of this episode. Um, and then we will think on that and then hopefully address that in the next, uh, the next discussion roundtable that we have, we'll try to come back to that and as well as some of the other things that we've received since the episode aired, because there's been, like we said, so much feedback from you guys. So you want, you want to go ahead and get to Ryan from Wisconsin? Yeah. yeah. So Ryan from Wisconsin, he calls in and, um, he was driving, which, uh, you know, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's driving and he said, you know, he's just complimenting us. We really appreciate it. He said he went in skeptical. He said he was there was a he experienced just kind of a ton of emotion at the end of it. He just sat there, kind of not knowing how to feel, and he started crying. Um, and you know, I you know, I think many of us felt the same way I did. I mean, I couldn't for I couldn't get myself to leave the theater. I was it just cast a spell over me that continues um, in a way the original hasn't. Uh, to be honest with you, I mean the original does, but in a very different way. Um, but 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 the original, I feel like I can leave it behind when I finish it. Like I I I feel completely immersed in that world, and then when it's over, um, I don't feel any desire to. Oh, especially in the earlier cuts of the film where they're driving in a freaking convertible, you know, in like the Napa Valley <laughs> country, yeah, yeah. which is so weird. Um, yeah. and, and like that in particular, like at the end of the movie, I'm like, well, whatever. Yeah. Um, in subsequent cuts when it ends and it's and it's still very dark and it's just like the elevator door closing you know I, I feel like that's like the end of the movie like all right that's like that's awesome that's the end of it yeah. like i can move on you know yeah um so really that's basically he's just kind of complimenting us and uh supporting us and we really appreciate it um and he said he's going to get it on blu-ray and i mean i really if there are any people who are working on the the blu-ray for 2049 please make a 4 hour documentary there cannot be some 20 minute shit or like no. broken down five minute. This is how we did the effects. I want yeah. an exhaustive three hour documentary about the beginning. I want the of dangerous this. days yeah. part two. For this and I know shit. we yeah. don't have Charles de Lozurica working on this, but we need, we need a good long doc. We have to, I mean, I will be incredibly disappointed if the Blu-ray comes out the and the 4k release <clears throat> without much on there. And it's just kind of, basic behind the scenes stuff. But I have yeah. a feeling that it's going to be pretty monumental. Although sometimes yeah, though, sometimes though when films aren't a hit in the theater, they release it to video real quick and it's bare bones. Well, I, I got to say the covenant Blu-ray was uh, one of the more impressive I've ever seen with the amount of material. Um, yeah, but it wasn't so. like Prometheus. <clears throat> Prometheus had a three hour and 40 minute behind the scenes doc. It did, uh, which was uh, uh, amazing, but but that but that wasn't released initially, was it? Yes, it was. It was that a, was that was that wasn't with the box set that came out. Uh, no, it, it came out right away. <laughs> if you bought the the if you bought the Blu-ray slash 3D version, you got that documentary. Oh shit! Okay, because I, I got that when I got the deluxe edition later. Yeah. Okay, I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Also, Prometheus, we got to talk about the app. How cool is that? Which app? Have you used that? There's an there's like an extended viewing app, which I, I really recommend people get because you sync it with the movie while you're watching it. 
on your mobile device and it's like a whole separate, it's like mother mode, but, um, oh, you know, yeah. it's additional content. Okay. And, uh, it's actually, it's actually, it's like really impressive for a movie that like, you know, I, I'm not sure how many people worldwide on a given night are watching Prometheus at this point. It's like a surprisingly well-developed app. It's actually really enjoyable. Um, <clears throat> I, I just, to what you're saying before, introvert what Ryan from Wisconsin was saying. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I feel so enveloped in this movie and, and, and part of why I keep going back and seeing it again. And I'm not like embarrassed to say this is that I don't, I don't want to leave it. I, I, I feel a genuine sense of, of mourning mm-hmm. when I, when it's over, I, I, I feel like, um, a little loss from that. And, and, and I, and I, and you know, that's something else that you and I have talked about in the show and, and Ryan, um, and Micah, um, is that, as as we're as we're aware that its theatrical run is drawing to a close because there's there's no way it's going to be out and and a and anything but some urban centers you know like um New York and Boston and Los Angeles and things for very much longer um I uh, I feel a, a sense of uh, a little bit of mourning because we're never going to get this again you know yeah, I mean this, I'm this, sure it'll be released in theaters again with showings and whatever you know yeah. like certain theaters but yeah this is this is it this is the time in history where it's been released and uh, it will come to an end. And like, we'll read about this on Wikipedia in 30 years, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I love that. Like, I, I love that sense of continuity. Cause like, you know, like, like you and I know everything about the original Blade Runner premiere in 82 and like all, you know, the way it was received, you know, what theater was, were showing it. There's pictures, you know, from it. Like it's, it's like a part of film lore, you know, mm-hmm. it's something to talk about. Yeah. Um, and you know, you see it in future noir, you see it in dangerous days, all these incredible ex- extended content. Um, and, and it's like the part of the, the myth of that film. And, and now we have our own myth and we're, we're sitting in it as it's happening, you know, mm-hmm. and what a gift, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So thanks Ryan from Wisconsin for the, the call in. We really appreciate it. Thanks, man. So our last, uh, we're not really discussing it, but we had a, a someone leave essentially a voicemail, but they sent it to us, um, from Reno D and he is a member of Fields of Calantha, which is our discussion group for the podcast what? and for the Blade Runner universe. So if you're if you want to get in on the conversation, and there's a lot going on there right now, please join Fields of Calantha. We're on Facebook. So yeah, again, like there's only like 70 people in it, but it's extremely active. Like yeah. it, it's a very very high quality community. It's also brand new, so it makes sense there's not that many people in it. But like the quality of conversation in there has been amazing. And I really recommend if you're listening to this and you're a Blade Runner fan and you're looking for other ways to interact with people, um, it's it's Fields of Calantha, which we looked up, and the canonically accepted spelling. There's two of them, but the one that we went with <clears throat> is C A L A N T H A. And and a reminder that Calantha was um, where this apocalyptic battle happened. Um, the uprising. That is, yeah. The, the uprising. Yeah. And a couple of. Um, expanded content for 2049 which we'll talk about it another time but that's that's where they're coming from so yeah type type it into facebook we'd love to have you yeah and thanks reno for uh your message and we're going to discuss what you you left us in the next episode so thanks everyone for listening thanks guys Hey gang, this is Reno from Montreal, here to discuss Blade Runner 2049, in my opinion, one of the finest examples of how to properly make a sequel to a beloved film. I ranked it right up there with The Godfather Part 2 and The Dark Knight in terms of sequels. This is a movie made with heart and brains, 
It has full artistic integrity. 2049 was not made to sell action figures, t-shirts, and all that jazz. It does not rely on cheap gimmicks meant to cash in on your nostalgia. It does not feel the need to dip its toes into the very common sequel baiting. It is not pandering. Denis Villeneuve made a masterpiece, undoubtedly one of the most gorgeous movies I've seen in my life. So far I've seen Blade Runner 2049 a total of 8 times, each of them on IMAX. Uh, my very first screening felt more like an immersive experience rather than anything else and to a certain degree so did subsequent viewings. It was not the traditional uh, movie going uh, experience. Uh, it, tri it triggered an emotional reaction. Something that not a lot of movie achieves. At least not with me. Um, it actually brought me back to that night when I saw the original film for the very first time. I'm not gonna go further into that story though, uh, this is something completely different discussion for another time. Gonna focus on 2049. Uh, I went in fresh. I had avoided all the trailers except for the very first teaser trailer, all of the images. I, of course, I had to unfollow some of my favorite groups on social media just for a very brief a brief time until the movie gets its release just so I could see the movie as fresh as possible um, <clears throat> I believe it was the right decision I mean when you see something like that and you walked in not knowing anything about what was gonna be shown what was gonna because I, I know for a fact that the movie was not spoiled in any way in the trailers and I had also decided not to watch any of the short features I did that after seeing the film um, I really wanted to be even clueless about how it's it was gonna look on screen and really it paid off uh, it, it was uh, all, I wouldn't say it was a life-changing experience, but almost. Uh, if we're gonna stick to cinema, you know, uh, yes, I mean, I'm gonna remember my very first viewing of Blade Runner 2049 probably until the day I die. Uh, it was that good. And I believe, even if it's not the the box office success some people were hoping uh, it's gonna have a very positive legacy uh, let's be honest Blade Runner was always a niche sci-fi film it's not like a Star Wars or Star Trek it's very cerebral it's it's niche I could say the same thing about Arrival not of Denis Villeneuve's film. Um, but Blade Runner 2049, I believe, at one point, there will be... Uh, there will be discussions, maybe in studios and anything, on how... Or if, at least in film schools, maybe not studios, all they think about is 
their wallets, of course. But in film schools, I believe 2049 will be served as an example on a good writing, how to properly balance practical and computer effects. Uh, let's be honest, a lot of films right now are mostly green screens and it shows and these movies do not age well. Look at any movies that you would have said, oh, the CG in that film, that's amazing. Wait a few years, watch it again. I can guarantee you it will not age well. We won't be saying this about Blade Runner 2049. Just like we won't be saying this about Max Fury Road. And just like we're not saying this about Alien, the original Blade Runner or Aliens, it won't look like garbage in a few years. It will remain a very gorgeous film. And I think everything from script, casting, cinematography, score, everything was the perfect blend to create that sequel. And as I've said previously, it's going to live on. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.